This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Corey, I feel like we continue to kind of keep a watch on shares of Disney. Stock's down about 2.5%, but more importantly, you know, Fox said to, uh, 21st century uh, Fox said to favor Disney in maybe a possible sale of some of their uh, film and um, or media assets uh, to the Walt Disney Company. So right. that's kind of still churning out there. And we saw this According to people familiar, I should say. 5% yesterday, yes, those yeah. people. Because we don't like to quote people who are unfamiliar, <laughs> as our friend Matt. Like I like to, to do those that are familiar. <laughs> I actually know nothing about this. Please quote me. Um, yesterday we saw the stock up five percent or four point seven percent down, giving yeah. a little little bit of those gains back today. Um, but you know, Disney uh, expanding its empire. It's interesting to think what they might keep, what might, they might, where they might uh, find uh, cost savings by put, putting some things together. Also interesting that these companies worked together on the most recent X Men movie, a really important franchise that Fox actually had, uh, mm-hmm. but Disney. Um, uh, and Mar- owning Marvel now, uh, able to work with them on that. Um, I thought it was interesting. I, you know I love my conspiracy theories. Okay. But I was watching uh, ESPN today, and we we got some, you know, as we were getting ready to go on the show, and I just sort of had it on in the background. And uh, I know where you're They going. didn't break oh. the Russia news. So the news that Russia will not be allowed to compete in the Olympics uh, for 2018 is huge sports news, I think. Indeed, ESPN teased the news uh, in the, in an earlier show, but when they came in their NFL show, they spent the entire half hour talking about Monday Night Football. Well, who paid all the money for the broadcast rights for Monday Night Football? ESPN. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, um, Bill Simmons, who was once a, uh, an employee there at ESPN, uh, um, uh, did some terrific work with Grant Land and a regular on TV. Was uh, got in trouble, uh, according to him. For saying negative things about ESPN and about Monday Night Football, and that that's the golden goose there. So I think there is some sensitivity about the, how they make their money. All right, let's bring in Paul Sweeney. He's our U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst at our in-house group of researchers, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. He's on the phone today from the UBS Media Conference. Hey, Paul, um, good to have you here with Corey and myself. We were talking about uh, 21st Century Fox uh, saying it would prefer, or, or it seems to be that they would prefer to sell some of their assets to the Walt Disney Company, according to those in the know. Uh are the expectations this is going to be a done deal, or is Fox kind of shopping this around right now? Yeah, it's interesting. Again, as you mentioned, at the UBS media conference, this is the 45th year they've had it, and I've been here, geez, almost 30 years. And, and speaking to some other long-timers here, we would never thought we'd be at this conference and, and hear that the Murdochs were considering selling part or all of the company. We thought we'd never see that day, but it looks like that day is here. Mm. Uh, James Murdoch did speak today at the lunch presentation, didn't really address the, the rumors, but... I think the expectation is that, you know, the Murdochs have, in fact, put the company uh, in play. And uh, there are a lot of credible buyers out there, Disney, uh, Verizon, um, you know, and, uh, and Comcast. Uh, but I think Disney, from a strategic perspective, uh, makes the best fit, primarily because um, what Disney really needs um, strategically is a greater international exposure, um, particularly from their media business. Um, and that's what Fox does. They has Sky, uh, which is pan-European pay TV, uh, and Star India, uh, which has uh, been in that market for close to 20 years. So those are two assets that I think Disney would like to own. And it, again, the real question for everybody is, are the 
Murdoch's serious about selling, and it appears uh, that they are. Uh, very interesting. What, is this about uh, generational change here? I think so. You know, it's, uh, we were all talking about that, you know, at the, this conference here. Because and, and, uh, when you look at James Murdoch, he's a, he's a young guy, so is his brother, and, and they're very on the ball. They're managing the business aggressively. They're well thought of by investors. But you would think that they would want to, you know, take these assets and run with them for 20 or 30 years like their father did. But, you know, maybe they are the smart people in the room. Maybe they are the ones saying, listen, we, we see the future of the media business. And, uh, uh, maybe it's a good time to sell here. There's a lot of challenges there, uh, well documented about cord cutting, and um, the media stock's been under pressure, uh, you know, for the last few years uh, because of these long-term secular concerns. Um, and so, I think a lot of media companies have said, if we're going to try to weather this change in the business, we need to be very big. And if you're 21st Century Fox, you're big, uh, but maybe you. Maybe think it's better to be a seller here than, than, than a buyer. Paul Sweden, what about uh, some of our reporting saying that this deal could open the door for James Murdoch, which is currently, you know, he's currently Fox's uh, CEO, to join the yep. Walt Disney Company and take over for Bob Iger, right? We've often had a discussion about who's going to be the successor to Bob Iger. Yeah, that's it's a very interesting story. Um, I I think uh, one of the cha- one of the real misses in the Bob Iger tenure is his inability to effectuate a, a good succession plan. Here, they they had a good plan in place, but it kind of fell apart a couple of years ago, and so they've been scrambling ever since. Um, so they are still really lacking a clear successor. Perhaps if they buy you know, some of these assets from Fox uh, and James Murdoch comes along with those assets, perhaps you know that would create some type of succession plan there. As crazy as that sounds, you never thought you'd see a Murdoch, you know, kind of running those assets. So most people here don't put much credence in it. But, you know, if you're Disney, you may be getting to the point where, listen, we don't have anybody internally. We haven't identified any externally. So this might be a scenario. Who would it be within Fox? Uh, Again, I think the the, the speculation is that it might be James Murdoch, um, given that he has, you know, control. He's CEO. He has operational control over all the assets, and he may be the best prepared uh, to make the transition. He's indicated, as has been reported, uh, that he would be interested if there were a role at Disney. Um, And we haven't heard that from Lachlan. So uh, it might be James at this point. Hey, this story, I think, also talked about that they were maybe talking to Comcast as well. Is that a possibility? Absolutely. Um, you know, Comcast and, and Verizon. Um, and you would argue, I think one would argue that Comcast or Verizon uh, might be an easier deal to get uh, cleared by the regulators, the, the Department of Justice in particular, um, since it would be another vertical integration and not a, a more of a horizontal deal than mm-hmm. Fox would be. But, gee, you know, given what's happened with AT&T and Time Warner, yeah. you know, most people don't know what to expect these days. Um, so, you know, maybe a smaller deal uh, involving Disney and certain assets of Fox might be easier to get done. Well, media certainly a continuing or continuously evolving landscape. Paul Sweeney, thank you. U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence. This week, Weight Watchers, the well-known weight loss control company, launched a new program. It's called VW... No, WW. I can't read my own writing. WW Weight Watchers, obviously. Freestyle. And let's talk about that and, and overall what the company is doing to target the bigger, broader issue of health care. Gary Foster is the Chief Scientific Officer at Weight Watchers. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Let's start with the new program that you just launched this week, Freestyle. What's it about? Well, it's really about addressing our members' pain points and really trying to look 
constantly evolving. How can we make our program better? So there are a couple of things that our members talked about. One is, I get this, you can eat whatever you want, and that's all very freeing and liberating, but there's a cost to that. We have, you have to track every single thing you eat and drink, and you have to think about portions, and it gets a little disruptive for a social life a on a tedious, Friday night. right? Exactly. So, but we're a science-based company, and we wanted to make sure that we leverage the science around tracking, improving outcomes, but also make the process a lot easier and a lot more liberating for our members. So we did two things to address those concerns. One is to add fruits and vegetables were already zero points in our system, so okay. it disproportionately favors those foods for scientific reasons. Um, so we added a variety of different foods, some not so surprising, like chicken and turkey, others quite surprising, like eggs, corn, peas. And what that does is use those foods as a healthy building block, but also allows people not to worry about whether I have four or five ounces of salmon. Is that where you want to spend your energy? All right. So I have to tell you, um, we were talking to a, a friend of our program, uh, very familiar with Weight Watchers, and I believe a user as well. Um, and they said, well, wait a minute. Beans, corns, eggs, chicken, fish, all zero points. Um, they all have calories, and they're right. going to impact your weight. So how can they not count? So He's smiling, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, right? Yeah, it's well, a lunchtime out here. I'm not. <laughs> Please continue. Uh, it's a really good question, and and we're not in reinventing the laws of thermodynamics. We're not saying there's any magical properties of these foods. We're a science-based company, right? So what we do is we reduce the point target for members by about 20 percent because we did a lot of careful work to say what proportion of people's dietary pattern is accounted for these zero points. So you foods. factor it in. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's yeah. interesting because talking to Mindy, Mindy Grossman, the CEO of your company of Weight Watchers, and she said, you know, you guys are taking kind of a holistic approach in terms of weight loss and weight control, but you're also listening to the users of the program and thinking about their lifestyle, their interaction with their families. And it sounds like you guys are just trying to make it easier for them to do and not such a nuisance. That's exactly right. We yeah. have two absolute deliverables we have to we have to deliver on for our members. One is weight loss. So we, that's a, we just have yeah, to do that and we got do that, that right? <laughs> but the other is to, the, to your point about making this more livable, making mm. this a way that for the real world we can estab establish healthy habits. And that doesn't make sense in a context where the price of that habit is I have to track every single thing I eat and drink for life. That great data for that, but it doesn't happen that often. So we're really happy with the results. We got really nice changes on the scale and off. So not only do we get so you, weight loss. And I know Corey wants to come yeah, in, but you sure. have scientific research to back up that by doing this process, by doing this freestyle program and kind of factoring in what those extra foods are that you might not counting the calories on, that people lose weight, they eat better. You the, see that. They're the best clinical trial results we've seen for any Weight Watchers program to date. Not wow. only do we get weight loss, we get reductions in hunger, reductions in craving, improvements in quality of life. So we're really happy with the results. And uh, just in the first couple of days in the States, the, 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 the overwhelming consumer response has been quite gratifying. How often does Weight Watchers uh, go through these kinds of big changes in its program? Because Weight Watchers has been around for a long time. Yeah. Right. So uh, historically, we, there was a big innovation in 2011, another big innovation in 2015. This is sort of a medium innovation. It has a big impact on our members and on our future members. But smart points, sort of the bedrock formula behind all this hasn't changed. We've just taken foods that used to have points and now make them zero. And there's another feature called rollovers, which accounts for the reality that people who eat less than they plan on 
on a particular day can roll that over into a weekly account for, again, greater flexibility and freedom. What I find interesting as we all try to figure out how to rein in the escalating costs of health care, I saw a statistic come up on Twitter, I don't know, a week ago or something that just talked about, I don't know, by 2020 or something, the percentage of children that are going to have either be pre-diabetic or diabetic, I mean, it's or, or obese. It's just pretty upsetting. You guys have a couple of programs for pre-diabetes and diabetes. When you look at the bigger problem of health care, what, what could be Weight Watchers' role, whether working with insurance companies, working with hospitals, what could it be? It's all of those. I think it, we, if you ladder it up, what we do is we take a scientifically based approach and a lot of people can have that, but we effectively translate that to the masses. And how we do that is, again, leveraging science, but a simple approach, a scalable approach, an affordable approach, and an accessible approach. And the way we increase our accessibility is to go through employers, to go through health insurance companies. And you do this? We absolutely do. So for employers, for example, who well appreciate both the direct and indirect cost of obesity in the workplace, right? So you have medical cost, healthcare cost, but you also have things like presenteeism and absenteeism. Productivity costs, yeah. Yeah, quality of life. It, 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 you know, obesity has lots of costs, both at society, business, and individual levels. So a lot of what we do uh, for in a Weight Watchers corporate setting is offer the Weight Watchers program and employers subsidize part of that cost to make it easier, again, even increasing the accessibility of our science-based approach for their employees. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a really interesting approach, and obviously, it's a, as Carol points out, you know, it's a big problem, big problem in America, yeah. obesity, and, and uh, everyone, you know, the more the steps, almost everyone wants to lose The more pounds. people working on it, I think, is a good thing. Um, thanks. Let's know how the program's going. My pleasure. Gary Foster, he's Chief Scientific Officer at Weight Watchers, uh, based in New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So bullish on a bunch of markets, and here to talk about some um, specific names, our drive to the close guest, Randy Watts, is Executive Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill and Company, uh, based in New York. Yes. In our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. I William O'Neill is in Santa Monica. Uh, we have a headquarters in Los Angeles, but we have offices in uh, New York, London, uh, India, Chicago, Boston, all over the San place. Francisco, all over the place. Yeah. So, what's the global? What's kind of is there a global consensus when when we look at the financial markets right now? What are uh, you hearing from like kind of all those different offices? I would say that the consensus is that we've been in a global uptrend. Uh, global GDP growth has been better than expected, as we've seen from ple- people like the IMF, et cetera, raising their GDP forecast for the for the world. The synchronized global growth is happening. Yes, and I think importantly, we've been in a strong corporate profit cycle in most of the major markets, and that's really what's uh, led stocks uh, recently up to this point. We've uh, had some real momentum runs too on on a handful of names over the course of the last year, whether it's Tesla or AMD or. You know, we're, we're in some cases, the cor- corporate results might suggest that uh, the stocks would run. In other cases, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a wildfire. 
Yes, I mean, the corporate profit cycle has been very strong. It's been very strong the last several years. Companies have been beating pretty consistently every earnings season. I think last earnings season they beat by more than 300 basis points. And they're growing revenues, which we care a little bit more about, and, right? And they're, and they're growing revenues as well. Uh, and they're forecasted to grow as well next year. I think next year uh, revenues are forecasted to grow on the S&P around 5% with earnings growth of around 7 – I'm sorry, 11 And so really we don't see it 11% year over year. Over year. Uh, and that's really – those estimates were kind of before the tax bill. So really – uh, we don't see an end to the corporate profit cycle right now, and we think that's good for stocks. We think a lot of the multiple expansion in the market has already occurred. So for further gains in U.S. equities from here, it's really got to be earnings-driven. Earnings-driven. So where do you see the most potential when it comes to that earnings-driven thesis? I think one thing that's starting to emerge as a theme inside the market is the fact that uh, if the tax bill goes through, it's currently constructed, obviously that would lower tax rates significantly for U.S. public companies. Buybacks, it, dividend. This is good. Th I mean, right? But what's important what about that, I think, is that it really favors companies that have a more of a domestic bias. Yeah. And also... Uh, tangentially favors, I think, mid and small cap stocks because they tend to be more domestically focused. Uh, many large companies, especially a lot of the companies that have done well performance-wise over the last year or so, are companies that have a large component of their business internationally. And uh, the, the domestic companies, which are more focused here, would actually be helped more predominantly, actually, by the tax bill. So we think that could be one of the things that's leading to a little bit of a rotation in the market right now. Why is that? Uh, because... A lot of companies that are very large and have a lot of international business, they're generating profits and they're being taxed uh, overseas from various subsidiaries and operations, where a lot of the smaller mid-cap companies have almost all of their business entirely in the U.S. So that lower U.S. tax rate. As a matter of fact, there's been that discussion that's been going on. That is it the World Trade and some other folks are looking at to see whether or not uh, <laughs> that we can actually lower this corporate tax rate to 20%, I guess, whether or not it's anti-competitive or whatever. But it's interesting. We're, we're seeing that discussion happen as well. It is interesting. And I think another thing we're seeing in the market, obviously, is there's been a large gap in performance on groups like technology yeah. versus groups like financials. You know, technology is up about 25% year-to-date in the S&P, and the financial group's up about 15 So there's about a 10-point spread, a 10, 10 percentage point spread. Uh, if you look back, that's actually a pretty pretty large gap. And we think some of that gap is likely to be alleviated going forward. Mm -hmm. And we think one of the reasons is is because financial stocks do have generally a higher proportion of their profits domestically. And so we think the bill could really help them. Um, I wonder, we talked to a guest yesterday whose suggestion was that the tax bill uh, will lead to a one-time gain in, in, uh, in operating earnings um, but and special dividends, buybacks, whatever. But that it's one-time in nature and that it won't – it'll be, it'll be a, a – of uh, a, a junk food-like gain there uh, without any real uh, nutrition. I wonder um, what your take is on that, I the think lasting impact of the tax cut. I would say yes and no. On the one hand, there could be a step up in earnings due to the tax benefit. I think the second question to ask, though, is GDP last quarter was, what, 3.3%? Mm -hmm. And so I think the question is, is GDP going to continue to accelerate or be stronger next year? If that happens, then maybe the revenue number for the S&P at 5% is a little bit too conservative. In addition, the market's been looking for a slight gain in operating margins for the S&P next year. I think analysts are forecasting about a 60 basis point improvement. And I do wonder if they get a little bit more top line growth, if there could be more leverage farther down the income statement in, the, in, in, in terms of operating margins. So. While I agree there's a benefit from taxes that's one time, I think the question is also what's going to happen to top-line growth next year, and could that be better than we think it's going to be? Right, and that, 
that would certainly play out then in the economy performing a lot better. Hey, when you so when you look at stocks, I said you were going to name some names. So talk to me a little bit about. I got some notes from you guys and uh, from you that you know actionable extended, you know actionable highlights, other actionable names. Um, are you buying or are you changing portfolio suggestions at this point? Sure. So I think what I'd like to to say right here is, you know, the market's had a very good run. It's the longest run that the market's had without a 5% correction in the Dow ever. So it's been a very, very long and really not a very volatile move in the U.S. equity markets. So we're kind of overdue for a little bit of a correction here. In addition, the S&P has had positive total returns for 12 months now. Uh, It's happened twice before. When it happened twice before, in the 13th month, the market corrected 5% and 7% respectively. Interestingly to note, right now the S&P 500 is about 7% away from its 200-day moving average. And obviously, at William O'Neill, we spent a lot of time looking at both technical analysis. That was like the most William O'Neill sentence in the history of mankind. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Randy, we got to run. Come back. This was a really great conversation. I think really smart and uh, got a lot of information. We didn't get to name names. I can picture. You can see the chart in your head. I just love it. Um, Come back. Okay, Randy Watts. He's Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist over at William O'Neill and Company. All right, everybody. They definitely came out. They definitely are playing. In fact, this next company had the best Black Friday in 22 years. Eric Lempel is Senior Vice President and Head of the PlayStation Network. Uh, And he joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Nice to have you here with Corey and myself. Uh, Eric, tell us a little bit more about what happened to you guys on Black Friday. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, it was our biggest Black Friday in history, and uh, and that's you know that's quite an accomplishment. You know, we're a company that's been in this business for over 22 years. It's the fifth year of PlayStation 4 being on sale during this time period, and uh, you know we went in with a plan and we had the right proposition for gamers, and really came out with some tremendous results. What's the right proposition for gamers? Well, I'd say, you know, now that we're really entering into the fifth year of PlayStation 4, we were focused on delivering the best gaming experience going into this generation. Um, We have a ton of other entertainment services, and that's an important part of our offering, but we really hit our stride with exclusive content that Mm -hmm. gamers can't get anywhere else. And, uh, you know, there are really three pillars that are responsible for the success of, of PlayStation 4 at this point in time. The first part is that exclusive content that comes from our Worldwide Studios group, and this is our internal studios that develop games exclusively for PlayStation. You know, earlier this year, we launched a title, which was brand new IP called Horizon Zero Dawn, and it really resonated with gamers. And then going into next year, you know, the story gets even better. We've got a game coming out, which is Spider-Man, well-known franchise, um, you know, well-known IP. We're working with one of the best developers in the world to bring gamers an incredible experience. And we're also delivering, for the first time in this generation of PlayStation, our God of War franchise. We'll be making an appearance on PlayStation 4 with a brand new title. So these are some of the things that are are resonating with gamers. But in addition to that, we have the best partnerships with all of the publishing partners that publish games across multiple platforms. Um, We've got things like Call of Duty, Destiny, Star Wars Battlefront, FIFA. And, you know, in most of these cases, gamers will get some type of PlayStation advantage. You're killing Carol here. Carol's like, (laughs) I don't know, call of duty, call a Battlefront, call a Star Wars. Get off the couch, go to a yoga class, don't play a game. I'm just saying. But but these, Carol, these games have such a connection with their players. I mean, it it is a defining part of the life of these gamers. Yeah, Uh, 
Go ahead. Yeah. No, and, and you know, and at this stage of the life cycle of PlayStation Four, we're bringing in a lot of new gamers. Um, you know, a lot of them are seeing are you? how deep. Yeah, we we absolutely Ooh. are. I mean, well, these are people who are either upgrading from last generation, who have been waiting for either their game to come to the platform or the right time, or enough of their friends have have jumped from another system and they're coming over, or it's just you know a somewhat price sensitive consumer who said now's the time. Now I see a great price on PlayStation. There's so much value there. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and get one. Hey, so talk about oh, sorry, no, Carol. no, you go ahead, Corey. Please, um, <laughs> I'm gonna just do a couple of tree poses while you. There, guys you're gonna do, do a little this. yoga here. So uh, I'm curious about your your VR stuff. I've, I've tried out a lot of the VR games when you guys first released it, and I've, I you know this is just me, but I wasn't impressed. It was some of the uh, effects were neat, but the gameplay wasn't great. At least the games that I tried. What's working best for you in VR? So with VR, it's an entirely new product. It's an entirely new platform, and this is our first generation. And, and you know, quite frankly, the consumers are really impressed with the product to date. We, we do a lot of consumer insights testing. We ask them what they think. They love this product. Um, so what's really resonating with them is, is something that may not have necessarily been there when, when you first tried it out, Corey, and that was the big games. You know, earlier this year in January, a few months after PSVR launched, we launched Resident Evil 7, which is a, a full game fully playable without VR, but also fully fully playable in VR. Um, we followed up with... That sounds um, scary in, of all games it, in VR. That sounds like a really scary one to be in VR. It's, it's it's horrifying, actually. I mean, we we have you know I can tell you just we've got hardcore gamers internally at the company who almost couldn't handle this. Experience. I don't know if I could. So I got to tell you when I when I did the Batman trial, and again I didn't love the game, but I I, um, I got to sort of be in the moment where Batman, where young Bruce Wayne sees his parents shot to death. Now I've read that story probably a hundred times. It was the most upsetting it had ever been for me because I the story that I knew so well because the VR experience was so realistic. I wouldn't let my kids see it. Well, and that's and, and that's that's kind of what's great. I mean, it, it brings you closer to the game than anything ever has. I mean, you know, we've got a lot of gamers who have been playing games for decades, and and VR is this massive change in how you can play games. And you know, we really believe we're just scratching the surface. Um, you know, more recently, last Friday, we released Doom, another well-known gaming franchise that's been around for decades. Yeah. that's in VR. And the, the game that's really resonating with consumers for the holidays is a game called Skyrim. A really big, deep game that's fully playable in VR now from our friends at Bethesda. But, you know, this is just, we're just starting. I mean, I'm looking Bethesda, forward the game to development company, not the city in Maryland. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Although I believe they're located in the same place. So, Eric, um, I, yeah. I, I just want to ask you, in terms of Black Friday, I mean, how aggressive were you with the retailers that are pushing out the, the PlayStation to mark down pricing to get people to actually go out and buy? I'm, I'm curious where you guys were on that. Sure. So, so we had a very special offer for Black Friday. PlayStation Four was one ninety nine. It's normally two ninety nine, and uh, we worked with our retail partners to uh, to arrive at that suggested retail price. That's pretty and aggressive. Then, you know, That's pretty aggressive. It, it is. It is. And, and, you know, at this stage of the life cycle, I mean, if you think about it, most of the other products being sold on Black Friday are relatively new. Um, you know, PlayStation 4 has been around. This is its fifth Black Friday. So it was it was the right time for these type of uh, pricing moves. And, and, you know, on Black Friday, really anything can happen. And, and we wanted to make sure we had the right proposition to bring in that new PlayStation consumer or, or someone who, you know, wanted to upgrade. Um, you know, we're also running, we also ran promotions and will be running promotions on our PlayStation 
PlayStation 4 Pro product, which is an upgraded PlayStation 4, a more powerful PlayStation 4, still in the PlayStation 4 family, but offers benefits for people who own 4K TVs and are, are looking for some more power behind their gaming. Um, well, it's it, what's going on in the gaming industry is just fascinating. We I, we didn't and have time e-sports. to talk about Twitch and YouTube and e-sports. or esports. You got to come back. There's so much going on at Sony. How about a um, kinder, gentler game, though, Eric? I, I think I don't know if I can handle Resident Evil. Kinder, gentler. But I'm gonna have to find out. Pretty cool though to see what they're doing. Eric Lempel, senior vice president and head at the PlayStation Network, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Carol Masser, Corey Johnson. We are Bloomberg Radio. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Slide it on over. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for your Movers and Shakers on this Tuesday afternoon. I'm Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson, S&P 500, 135 names uh, in the index higher today, uh, 368 lower, so a little bit more of a a negative tone to the trade, uh, and three unchanged. What do I want to talk about? Um, Corey, what do you kick it off? Well, I'm looking at Edison, uh, ticker okay. EIX. Uh, it's your biggest uh, loser in the S&P 500 today, Edison International, which includes Southern California Edison among its operating companies. Stock's down 13% today. It's a $23 billion company. Of course, it was worth, worth more before it took that 13% haircut. Um, the fires in Southern California that uh, took off yesterday are raging uh, with zero containment. Uh, and rapidly spreading across what they call the Southland, specifically uh, Ventura uh, and Santa Barbara counties, uh, and then into Los Angeles County. Um, uh, I just got a phone with my brother who lives up there, and uh, uh, seeing that uh, Santa Clarita now, there's a fire there, uh, caused them to briefly close Interstate 5, uh, sort of south of the Grapevine, and now Highway 14 as well. So if you know that that area of Los Angeles, uh, Santa Barbara, uh, Ventura County, uh, huge fires, uh, the concern is that uh, Southern California Edison might have been the cause of the fire. But Edison International, out on their blog, they updated a blog post just recently, it said the Thomas Fire in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties it burned a lot. They talk about how much it burned, but they said there, there is no indication uh, that uh, their facilities were the cause of that based on the origin of the Thomas Fire in Santa Barbara and the Creek found, uh, Fire in Silmar. No indication that the company's facilities were the source of the fire, but uh, the, the stock is reacting as if they were uh, and uh, stock down quite a bit today. Just going to mention Matt um, Mattel, ticker is MAT. Speaking of stocks being down, Corey, it is the number three decliner in the S&P 500. Not seeing any specific news here, but uh, shares of Mattel were down 5.3%, down about 90 cents to $15.95 a share. Quick check on the stock here this year. We know it's been getting hammered, uh, down 42%. Kids playing with less toys. There's other things they're getting into, electronic games and so on and so forth. And you've got other retailers uh, in the mix. And there has been, of course, some speculation, some talk about Mattel hooking up with Hasbro. Uh, but we haven't seen any of that gel. But nonetheless, uh, Mattel actively um, moving around and down 5.3% or number three decliner in the S&P on this Tuesday. We get these news activity alerts for certain stocks on the Bloomberg. It's really yeah, interesting. Cause it, it just sort of shows that people are looking for a certain stock for news, but they don't really see it. And so I looked at HubSpot, 
um, the, the very odd Boston-based tech company that is that uh, was a, the the subject of this wonderful book, Disrupted, that we've had the uh, author Dan Lyons come to talk to us about HubSpot a couple of times. Uh, well, HubSpot uh, shares had a lot of news uh, questions and not a lot of answers. I emailed a friend who's short the stock, and he's like, oh, yeah, Citron Research out today. Andrew Left at Citron Research uh, put out a note uh, today and a tweet related to that note saying, seven reasons why HubSpot will trade down to $50 a share. Nonetheless, the stock actually is up slightly for the day, uh, 0.1%, 77.45. But uh, he says specifically that the company, the business has no pricing power, that there's no transparency, that partners are pulling out of the business, that their growth is hitting a wall, and that's actually true, uh, as are some of these other things that are interesting. And he suggests their business model is broken and lacking in intellectual property. Dun, dun, dun. Hey, just quickly, I want to mention restoration hardware stock out uh, in the after hours. Stock's down about eight-tenths of a percent out with its latest quarterly release. Uh, third quarter comp sales up 6% versus an estimate uh, looking for a 5.6% increase and their third quarter adjusted EPS of a dollar four. So uh, we'll continue to track uh, those headlines. Um, that's another one the short sellers are all over. That's one of your favorites. It's up 238% this year. I'm just going to say that. Snap. That's, why, that's another reason the short sellers are looking at it. I know. There's a lot. What is it? 45% percentage of the, the 45% float. 45% of the float is short. <laughs> all right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. And that would be Smart and Final Stores, Corey. It's a company that describes itself as having the low prices of a warehouse club chain and the freshness of a local farmer's market. The company targets business as well as consumers and operates cash and carry stores for the food service industry. While Smart and Final traces its roots back to 1871, its current stint as a publicly traded company has been relatively brief. The buyout firm Aries Management took the company public in September 2014. The ticker is F or say SF. S, Smart and Final Stores. There you go. Smart and Final went public at $12 a share. Stock dropped below that price in June when Amazon.com entered the grocery business with a deal to buy Whole Foods Market. At the end of October, the shares fell to a record low of $5.80. After rebounding the past five weeks, Smart and Final slumped again today after J.P. Morgan began coverage with a neutral rating. The firm cited growing competition from Amazon and other companies in the uh, company's home state of California. Higher expenses from a recent takeover were another concern. Now, J.P. Morgan's 12-month estimate for Smart and Final shares is $9. That was actually lower than yesterday's close. So today, Smart and Final closed at $8.80 after falling 7.4%. Smart and final. That's like stupid and forever? I don't know about that. I'm sorry. It's just an interesting name for a store. Sure it is. Or for a company. It's like Tuesday morning, you know, because that's when they have their bargains. It's Tuesday morning. You got to love it. I get that. Smart and final. Um, Love it. Dave, love all your stuff too. Bloomberg Stock of the Day. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.